Hello and welcome back to the Sports Map Podcast. My name is Nick Kane. This is the podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. Now, in today's chat, we are talking to aponeurotic injuries in the lower limb, and we'll be talking to Scott Hume. Scott is a sports physiotherapist. He's worked at the Western Bulldogs, which is in the AFL, the elite level football code here in Australia for the last eight years. And he's also embarking on a PhD looking at the aponeurosis within biceps femoris. And Scott will talk to the processes and what's involved in his PhD at the start of the podcast. But I think Scott brings together a nice blend again uh, with his clinical background and, and employment where he works with athletes and rehabilitation uh, daily and also his uh, extensive knowledge in the space of aponeurosis and, and the injuries and, and relevance to that. So uh, we really hope you enjoy this chat with Scott and um, and, and get some really nice takeaways that you, you guys can use uh, into, your, into your rehab space when you come across these injuries. Yeah, as always, we uh, like to remind you a little bit about our upcoming events and we have two new events uh, that have just gone live and that is our How I Rehab Conference for 2024. That's going to be Feb 10th and 11th in Melbourne. So that'll be a range of 12 to 14 presenters over the space of two days uh, bringing together their approach to how they rehab essentially from some of our experts and that will delve into aspects of pathology-based injuries but also more systems and processes as well. So something for everyone, uh, if you're an SNC coach to allied health, to physiotherapists, it's, it's a great way to come together, network and share ideas. So looking forward to, to seeing many of you there. We've also just announced a speed acceleration masterclass uh, with Jonas Dododo. So Jonas, those who don't know, Jonas is a um, world-class sprint coach, having coached many of uh, the top 10 fastest athletes in the world. Uh, he's a director of Speedworks and he's out running a one-day masterclass for us here, 25th November in Melbourne. Uh, again, really suitable to sort of SNC coaches, performance coaches, rehab specialists and physiotherapists. Uh, Jonas has worked with many top-level physios before and really brings together that nice top-end component of a rehab space from mechanics uh, and it'll be really, you know, tying nicely to both our rehab and performance aspects. So. Don't miss Jonas, they'll certainly sell out very quickly. And obviously Tim McGrath, who we've talked about, is running a two-day practical-based course on ACL rehab and return to play, also in Melbourne, and that's early on in November, and that's close to selling out as we stand right now. So uh, some brilliant events coming up. Looking forward to being able to get face-to-face with everyone, have a chat, network, and uh, get some great content out there. So yeah, head over to sportsmap.com.au for all that info. That's enough from me. Let's jump into our chat with Scott. Right, welcome, Scott, to the Sportsmap podcast. Thanks, mate. Um, it's really, really fantastic to be here, and um, thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to having a chat chat today. Now, mate, I was very keen to get you on uh, to chat a little bit around aponeurosis and muscle injuries, and a little bit about what you're doing in the study field as well as clinical field at the moment. Uh, can you give us a bit of an update, I guess, first on what you're doing clinically? Uh, I know you're working in the sports setting within the AFL, and and also, um, what's on the research horizon? Um, yeah, so as you sort of alluded to, I work at um, in the AFL um, setting with the AFL men's program at the Western Bulldogs Football Club. Um, one of the senior sports physiotherapists there. Um, so yeah, my day to day day role day to day role is is certainly um, looking at you know muscle uh, muscle strain injuries, and so. It's sort of the fallout of that, um, along with along with everything else that goes with that role, um, sort of led to, I guess, some of the the research um, interests and um, and certainly an interest in in hamstring strain injuries specifically, and um, and then looking at muscle tendon and myoponeurotic injuries. So that's uh, where my research sits, and 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 that's through the Australian Catholic University, um, which I'm. Um, currently undertaking under the supervision of uh, David Opar and um, the Sprint Research Centre there. So uh, sort of primarily looking at, um, as I sort of alluded to, that that hamstring myoponeurotic structure um, and I'm sort of using computational sort of biomechanical uh, approaches, so building some three-dimensional models to sort of hopefully ascertain um, the tissue response to different loading um, 
uh, different mechanical loading paradigms and and also learning hopefully a little bit more about how it adapts to adapts to load um, which currently um, when we're looking at specifically around the aponeurosis where we're pretty limited in that space so um, I think those two things kind of marry up kind of nicely um, um, at times and, and there's certainly the the, uh, the research side is, is quite different to my day-to-day role. Yeah certainly I think it's obviously a, a tremendous blend to be able to work in a clinical setting and see it day-to-day and then maybe uh, obviously delve a lot deeper within your research practice. We chatted a little bit uh, before we started recording just around the process and what you're working through with the research so obviously there's a few stages within that. Uh, can you give us a bit of a brief rundown on what those stages look like and then I guess uh, when we might expect to be able to, to see some of this or read some of these results. Yeah, um, it's a really great point. I am a part-time student as a result of my full-time uh, day-to-day work. But um, so hopefully, I don't. Uh, it will be a little while for some things, but I certainly do have a, a review that's under 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 review at the moment. So hopefully. Um, that will be out surely. And that's sort of hopefully um, it is looking at the structure sort of function and adaptation of lower limb aponeurosis. So, so I guess sort of hopefully some of what we'll talk to today um, and then following up on from that, I sort of hopefully my three sort of empirical um, data-driven studies will sort of look at, I guess, how that hamstring um, myoponeurotic uh, structure sort of adapts in response to potentially injury, um, sort of a, the acute response uh, from um, from maybe different exercise um, selections or common hamstring exercises like the Nordic or the 45-degree hip extension and among others. Um, and then sort of my final sort of work will look at how maybe healthy um, hamstring aponeurosis uh, tissue adapts to, to different loading paradigms. So hopefully across that sort of uh, program of research, we sort of Give a little bit more insight into how how these structures respond in 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 respect to injury um, exercise and mechanical loading and and then the fallout in terms of uh, an adaptation um, and uh, response. Awesome, mate. That's uh, comprehensive, uh, very comprehensive process. Uh, for the for our listeners, like, can you talk us through like what an aponeurosis is and and also within that, I guess, what's a myoponeurotic structure? Yeah. Um, yeah, no worries. Yeah, no. Um, well, yeah, the aponeurosis is interesting. For, for, to start with, I think that's the a key thing. Just terminology is is sometimes what is often confused. I think the the structure in itself. I think if you look across the literature, it can be uh, referred to as intratendinous, uh, the intramuscular rashi, uh, the intramuscular tendon, the central tendon, um, and all these things. Whilst um, uh, from a terminology point of view, it's certainly you know correct in, in certain respects. Um, I think the aponeurosis, as a result, that the the structure um, uh, it does get lost sort of in the in the nuance of, of how it does differ maybe from other uh, the tissue structures like the free tendon and the muscle tissue. Um, but generically or classically, it's described as effectively a thin. Uh, fibrous connective tissue sheet, which is really just an extension of the free tendon. Um, and, and for instance, if that's the, the hamstring muscle, that, that might be the extension of the, of the common tendon from the ischial tuberosity um, as then it penetrates into the uh, biceps femoris longhead as it becomes more intramuscular. But also on the biceps, if we use that as the example, it has a, a distal, um, obviously a ponurosis, which provides uh, an interface uh, for the inserting fascicles from biceps femoris longhead and shorthead. Um, so their key role, I guess, is is this almost transitional structure that sort of connects the free tendon and the muscle tissue um, and critically provides an interface for the muscle fascicles to attach. So um, it, it's, a, it's a pretty unique uh, structure. And so whilst that generic description I gave before of this fibrous sheet, when we look at the different muscle types and we might sort of talk to this, um, there's a lot of variability with, within that and, and quite a, a differing in a, in a structural makeup in terms of its overall morphology. So, um, yeah, I think that there's, there's sort of a lot to, a lot to chat to in, in that space, yeah. If we were to talk, I guess, more about the myoponeurotic junction, which is sort of touched on, I guess, at the back end of that question, um, 
I guess this is where we look at it at a more microstructural level. It can be pretty complex as well. So as I've alluded to, it sort of is an extension of that of that free tendon or external tendon, um, and then it coalesces um, uh, with the, with the muscle tissue. And, and so this is where we get the can the the connection between the extracellular matrix, so the perimyceum, epimyceum um, structures that sort of interact. Um, as they also connect with the aponeurotic structure. So effectively the paratendon of the aponeurosis sort of almost has an extension and, and, and becomes almost that epimyceal barrier or border of the muscle tissue, um, where as those muscle fascicles are attaching onto the aponeurosis, you're also having perimyceal um, attachment and, and connection uh, through there. So again, that creates a, a pretty unique uh, structure there. Um, and then adding to that complexity, um, when we look at the collagen organization of the aponeurosis, that also seems to differ um, from the free tendon as well. So whilst it's similar in that it has a large, uh, largely uh, longitudinal representation, I guess, of its collagen uh, fibers and its collagen organization, it does sort of tend to have these more branching or oblique um, fibers, uh, which when we talk to this about its more mechanical properties might play a really big role in, in why it acts quite differently um, to the free tendon. Um, and then sort of to round all that out is that you've got that myoponeurotic junction or the often described as the myotendinous junction. So you have that, those tendon um, like protrusions into the muscle tissue, sort of creating that increased surface area at that, at that junction. So, in itself, that's its own entity and has been described, I guess, pretty thoroughly within the literature and um, is, as, as you well know, a, a common site of injury. So um, you can see how that aponeurosis really, really does provide a, a really, really key transitional um, role, I guess, in, in the function of the, the whole musculotendinous unit. Yeah, for sure, for sure, mate. Yeah, really well uh, explained and, and really shows the extensive knowledge you have through that area of the anatomy. You, we talked, uh, or you talked around the mechanical properties and I guess, um, you know, which, which may lead into some of the loading behaviours. Uh, can we, can you fill us in on that? Yeah, so I sort of like touched, touched on that, I guess, with the collagen organisation and effectively, oh, I think the best way to talk to this is effectively the... Um, how the aponeurosis, I guess, is similar to the free tendon and then, I guess, how, how it differs because largely I think a lot of people sort of, again, maybe because of the terminology, this the idea of the intramuscular tendon it sort of acts like a tendon. Um, and in, in some cases, I think, and in some respects it, it does, it obviously has an energy um, store and release function, um, which is why a largely a large portion of its collagen organisation is sort of aligned along along that sort of line of pull. Um, but again, we also see these branching um, fibrils. So that may indicate that we also have this transverse um, uh, or, or biaxial uh, loading behaviour. And when we look at, at the data across humans and animals, it, we, whilst we'll often see its longitudinal strain response or its um, longitudinal modulus being quite similar to the tendon, when we actually dive into the transverse property, so that the amount that the, the aponeurosis might stretch transversely um, or how compliant it is transversely in regards to its transverse modulus, we actually start to see that it differs quite quite markedly. And this is most, is most likely to do, to do with the, the, the close interaction uh, with the muscle um, connection. So as that muscle bulges, um, and increases in intramuscular pressure, we will tend to see that the, the uh, aponeurosis, because potentially of, of, of these intrinsic properties, will tend to actually um, yeah, stretch, stretch more um, in that transverse direction um, than, than the free tendon. Um, so, yeah, we have a really unique uh, structure there that there's a deforms in, in – in well two directions but in in some cases where we see the intramuscular tendon we might even see fascicles coming from um almost a three-dimensional uh, almost multi-axial um perspective and and in in those cases our current understanding is is probably pretty limited um and there's a little bit of work that sort of suggests out there that 
when we look at muscle modeling uh, approaches, where we look at compare it to like a series elastic component or the parallel elastic component, if talking in like a muscle model um, uh, respect, it, it's sort of probably not well bound by those structures because as, as I've alluded to, it sort of has, has a role, a role in both. So defining as one or the other um, sort of may not fully represent its, its function or its, or its behavior. Okay, and I might be jumping forward here a little bit because we'll talk around, I guess, some some loading base uh, with respect to an injury in mind. But just uh, for getting an injury for now and just sort of putting a clinical uh, take on your um, description just there, is there certain exercises that maybe moving forward or a certain type of exercise that can get that different loading on the transverse and... Uh, and is that a way we can target things a little bit differently? How does that sort of all come together? Yeah, really, it's a, like, it's a fantastic question. Uh, largely what we understand, though, uh, is based off isometric loading conditions. So a, a large amount of the data has obviously uh, resulted in uh, the use of B-mode B mode, uh, ultrasound, so a two-dimensional uh, two uh, understanding of, of its deformation. Um, and so... As a result, we're sort of at times been limited um, by only using isometric contractions. Um, the use of some MRI and inbuilt MRI machines where we're able to uh, create maybe cyclic contractions has sort of uh, allowed us to sort of identify a little bit more about them. Um, so there's, there's a couple of studies out there that do suggest that um, like a cyclic uh, iso-inertial movement will actually show um, shortening um, shortening of the uh, of the uh, of the aponeurosis in the longitudinal direction, um, whilst other isometric contractions using MRI have actually shown along its length. Um, whilst some aspects of it will lengthen, others will shorten. So we have this almost non-uniform response. So whilst your question is relevant, in if we load it, will there be? How do we sort of? almost uh, create a situation where we're able to um, develop more transverse strain. Um, Aspects along its length will strain maybe more transversely than other regions. So it's hard to sort of, I guess, discern, yeah, regionally how that that would affect the tissue. And we just just don't have that sort of information at this stage. But um, there's one study that looked at the Tibant uh, central aponeurosis, and they did use a lengthening and shortening um, contraction, so effectively an eccentric and concentric contraction. Um, and effectively, the concentric contraction did shorten almost twice the amount of the lengthening contraction for effectively the same amount of muscle force. Um, so that may suggest that shortening contractions, at, particularly at low, it appears from the data also at low um, intensity, might actually allow it to uh, bulge more transversely in those in those um, in, in in direct concentric contractions, but also maybe at lower low activation levels. All right, so so there's there is literature out there talking to I guess uh, size or, or or the the makeup of a intramuscular or aponeurosis. Um, What's your what's your take on that? What's your knowledge around uh, size and geometry around maybe whether it's the influence of injury or protection from injury? Yeah, I think look, um, there's a couple of there's a couple of key key parts, and the the data uh, that again that's out there um, is some great work by I believe it's Evangelides et al. And they basically identified. Um, that there was quite a large variability effectively in the cross-sectional area or that interface area of the, the aponeurosis. Um, I think they showed something like a six-fold variability, um, the aponeurosis to muscle cross-sectional area. So pretty pretty marked um, variability there. And so the, 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 the conversation around that was that obviously with a smaller interface, would that experience I guess greater stress and strain at those sites now I guess that's still a little bit up for debate debate effectively so we don't have a lot of prospective data around if a more a smaller cross-sectional area um, actually influences you know, future injury risk it, it's certainly logically sound um, and hopefully 
hopefully some of my work around excise selection and some some of the fallout of that may help to, I guess, ascertain a little bit more information in that. Whilst it won't influence, I guess, our understanding on, you know, prospective injury risk, um, hopefully we can sort of learn a little bit more about if a, if a smaller uh, sort of interface area actually does influence the sort of fibre strain or long fibre strain at that site, um, as well as also your strain at the aponeurosis directly because, um, I guess the key thing is what we're talking about here is that we actually see quite commonly injuries at that aponeuro at that aponeurosis directly, as well as indirectly from a myoaponeurotic junction. Um, so, yeah, it's a certainly it's a really it's a really key piece of the puzzle, I think. Um, but we're still, I guess, still a little bit a little bit to go there in terms of understanding, I guess. Does that fit into the the picture with our understanding around muscle architecture, regards to fascicle length, our exposures to high speed? How does that, I guess, fit into that puzzle? We're still a little unclear. Um, I guess just to add to that, there's also some great work that sort of identified that a more narrow proximal aponeurosis of the hamstring uh, muscle uh, specifically, um, or or biceps femur, I should say, specifically, also influences the long fibre strain. So, for instance, a more narrow uh, aponeurosis comparatively to a, obviously a wider aponeurosis um, along that proximal myoponeurotic junction um, appeared to increase the um, strain along almost like a one centimetre uh, area adjacent to that myoponeurotic junction. And this was exacerbated um, with lengthening c- contractions and also with running a sort of a, a, a simulated modelling um, of late swing at sort of 70, 85%, I think, and maybe 100% of, of max velocity, so increasing the fibre strain. So theoretically, um, uh, you know, that morphology may also have have sort of a fallout effect in terms of future injury risk as well, and, and that's what the authors speculated. Um, but again, uh, prospectively, we're just sort of, we're still a little bit limited in that space. So, um, yeah, lots to, lots to do in that space, Nick, and I think hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully some of my work as well as, yeah, others will sort of hope to be able to answer that question, I guess, more thoroughly in the future. Yeah, perfect. Well, I guess for like as a lead-in with that question, we sort of are shaping to a, a little bit more of a, a, a trying to bring together a bit of a clinical picture on how we might uh, come across one of these injuries and a little bit about what we might do. But um, I guess to kick that off, we've mainly talked around the biceps fem here. Where else do we get, uh, where are we prone to, I guess, getting these aponeurotic injuries that we should be uh, wary of or cognizant of? Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a really good point. I I think a nice way to start here, because we certainly go through location, I think is just to sort of come back to, this idea, and there's a really lovely consensus statement by uh, the the guys, uh, primarily based out of Barcelona. So I think Ramon Balius and and Carlos Pedre and, and and their research team that sort of differentiate these into peripheral or central um, aponeurotic injuries. Which for me, I kind of I picture them almost as extramuscular or intramuscular. Um, and I think that's a nice way when we think about these. So like if, for instance, we'll use the hamstring, like obviously is a, is a common place. And I think there's a recent systematic review that's sort of looking at the proximal um, uh, intramuscular aponeurosis. And, and, and so portion of that proximal aponeurosis actually sits extramuscularly at right at the, at the I guess, that, that proximal section before it penetrates into the muscle. So we obviously see almost like a mixed pattern at that site and also we see semitendinosis attach onto that common tendon and almost have a shared aponeurosis with biceps femoris longhead at that at that site. So immediately there's like a really complex, partially extramuscular, partially peripheral structure, and then a partially uh, central or intramuscular structure that just sets up that biceps femoris longhead. Then if we kind of dive distally, as I sort of alluded to, we have this sort of peripheral distal aponeurosis that long head attaches onto, but we also have short head attaching there, creating obviously uh, that T-junction sort of uh, almost unique entity in itself where we see like a a part, a a portion of that aponeurotic tissue um, sort of protrude um, before becoming almost an epimyceal border between short head and long head. 
So we again, just within looking at like effectively three muscles, we have them almost interconnected by these aponeurotic structures. And so that's just looking at hamstring. And then we look at the calf, which is particularly unique. So you have this almost interdigitating structure. So it's almost like fingers in, interlocking is how I, I picture it, um, particularly when we think about soleus. So we see uh, the two compartments of, of soleus, so your anterior and posterior compartments. And as a result, you have this anterior and posterior aponeurosis. What's unique is that we have the, the central aponeurosis, or often referred to, I guess, as that median septum, protruding off the posterior aponeurosis and almost penetrating through that compa muscle compartment through to the anterior compartment, um, almost where there's like a gap or almost like a trough in that anterior um, aponeurosis. So it's almost like you see them like linking together across the, the two muscle compartments, which when we look at the, I guess the, in, from when we come back to an injury point of view, we see that the severity of injury, I think from some work from Bakash seems to be greater when they involve the central aponeurosis or return to playtime seem to increase. Um, and so, you know, there's this incredible yeah, complexity to, to, to this. And then that's not even taking into consideration individual variability, which I think there was a study recently, again, by um, Carlos Padre that showed quite big changes in the medial and lateral components. So when we're talking about not just anterior, posterior portions of these soleus aponeurosis, we're all almost we're also looking at the medial and lateral changes. So we often see a far more uh, or hyperplastic or smaller um, uh, medial or lateral um, posterior aponeurosis or, or potentially a, a median septum or central aponeurosis that is more lateral or, or more medial in some individuals. So again, what effect that has on the muscle fiber stretch or a long fiber strain and therefore future injury risk, um, again, is really exciting, I think, because I think there's loads in that space um, to obviously explore further. And, and, and so I've talked about two structures. We haven't even got to rectus femoris, uh, which, again, has its own unique structures with, with the central aponeurosis and a, and a posterior aponeurosis, which are commonly, commonly sites of injury. Um, the posterior aponeurosis, um, which actually coalesces uh, – with the vastus intermedius um, uh, aponeurosis as well. So that, again, they have sort of almost a shared aponeurosis, especially as you obviously uh, continue down distally um, before it becomes uh, uh, and, and par partially makes up that quadriceps tendon. Um, and, and that structure, the posterior aponeurosis, is, is quite similar to the uh, medial gastroc posterior aponeurosis, which... Um, Whilst is often confused, uh, it was often conflated. I think with the the um, with the aspect of the one of the soleus aponeurosis in that they they sit very close to to one another, but they're actually quite they're actually separate. Whilst they're parallel, there's actually a gap in between. And often injuries at this site um, have been explored, and I think um, almost have their own um, classification system um, by Carlos Padre in terms of different types um, into the amount of aponeurotic disruption at that site. And that structure there almost reflects that of the posterior aponeurosis in, in the rec fem. So, um, again, creating that sort of idea of, of that, that pr uh, peripheral or um, extramuscular um, aponeurotic injury. So, the world's your oyster a little bit in, in, in terms of where these structures uh, lie. Um, and, and, and they're commonly injured. Um, and and we certainly see this clinically. I, I think especially in elite uh, high-speed running athletes, you, you, you certainly see injuries at these sites uh, very, very commonly. Mate, a really detailed view and, and knowledge of anatomy there. You, you mentioned around injuries and when they get them. Maybe imaging, we don't need to talk through too much um, because it probably uh, is a straightforward aspect. But what, what does that information give us in the clinical field that then may influence um you know what we're thinking around our next steps yeah it's a really it's a really um interesting topic uh, in the use of mri 
especially when I talk to, I guess, young clinicians around these types of injuries, because our clinical assessment isn't particularly strong at being able to differentiate those that have intramuscular tendon injuries or aponeurotic injuries to those that, that do not, um, MRI imaging has become sort of pretty well sought out, sought after, especially in those that have the resources to be able to, um, uh, to be able to be able to get regular MRIs. So, um, this is uh, the, the work in this space effectively suggests that MRI isn't particularly useful in, I guess, predicting return to play times or re-injury risk, especially when, um, MRI is blinded to those clinicians, but, um, there's still a large portion of data out there that does suggest that MRI findings using the BAMIC classification system, um, so those those sort of uh, classified C injuries um, will have will have longer return to play times um, and uh, are also have a have a greater re-injury rate comparatively to those without intramuscular injury. Now, as I've alluded to, there's there's studies that also um, contradict that and they're blinded um, to those MRI findings and, and they suggest no differentiation there. So. The question of how useful it is, I find it from 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 my own experience uh, particularly useful because uh, I like to I think understand uh, where the location of that lesion um, of the aponeurosis may may occur, um, and that may uh, sort of have some impact in terms of timeframes um, as well as also our exercise selection and our graded uh, loading progressions. Um, it. There is a recent study that also identified a, a few specific MRI characteristics um, and effectively out of a group of five, which sort of they looked at, I think it was transverse and longitudinal or mixed uh, like defects within the aponeurosis was sort of one feature, sort of uh, it was uh, like an interstitial sort of edematous uh, picture, so that feathering that we see on MRI findings as well as a callus gap uh, sort of a loss of tendon um, or loss of aponeurotic tension. If we combine those into sort of a predictive modelling um, perspective, I think having two of those five findings did sort of, sort, of, sort of suggest that there was a higher risk of recurrence. So potentially we could be utilising some of those characteristics potentially through our rehab process to help inform potentially our loading progressions. Are we, are we seeing uh, the sort of the, the recovery of some of these characteristics through our, um, our rehab frameworks um, to guide our, our return to play times? I think we're not quite there yet. Uh, I think there's sort of more space, uh, more, more work to be done in that space, but it's certainly interesting um, to think about um, because I guess previous suggestion is that MRI has very little clinical utility in return to play and re-injury sort of rates. But considering our clinical assessment isn't particularly um, strong, I think it's a, a, a very useful uh, modality to have up our sleeve to help give the whole clinical picture. Yeah, certainly. Okay, that's an excellent answer. And jumping forward a little bit before we do, because we're going to chat on a little bit around the some of the early loading and uh, things like that. But if whilst on MRI and an aponeurotic injury, would you use it for return to play or guiding it through a rehab process, I guess? Uh, and would that inform you at all? Um, it doesn't. It doesn't currently, no. The answer is I have certainly academic purposes sort of looked looked at uh, sort of serial scanning um, and sort of identified um, the recovery um, potentially of that that defect or that that gap within the aponeurosis or sort of that um, ability of CSC a much more taut and, and sort of uh, uh, I guess a, a recovery of that loss of tension that we often see in those high grade um intramuscular ponderotic injuries. Um, but I would not suggest that at this stage it has actually really impacted um, the return to play um, timeframes um, purely because I think we still uh, are guided by that thought that the clinical progression um, and that graduated return um, 
as long as you're clearing a lot of our key outcomes, and, and that, that, as I said, that can include a multitude of, 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 um, of testing and, and factors that we, we take into consideration here, but that they are making up a much greater uh, or taking up a much greater priority than the MRI at this point in time. It, it's, it's, it's sort of, it sits there in the back of your mind, I think still at the moment. Um, but I still keep coming back to some of the data around the MRI um, uh, blinded studies where they were guided purely by clinical progression and, and they didn't seem to suggest uh, a big difference between those with and without intramuscular tendon um, involvement or aponeurotic involvement. It's a really tricky space, Nick. It's, it's, not, it's not clear cut. And even in, within that data, you see injuries in a really early phase. Whilst I think if you look at the, the Aspatar study, I think in the first three months, there was a, a greater um, increase in re-injuries, but I don't think that there's, it's powered well enough to, to, to have any significance. So when we do see these like recurrent injuries of these types, I think they do occur early and probably occur during rehab. And so maybe the MRI, that doesn't inform that so well. At, at, like the, the, the studies don't suggest that so well as yet. Um, but maybe more work in this space might may help to sort of guide that and and then and potentially give us more uh, specific characteristics, like I alluded to, um, that we may track, as said, serially through that rehab process. But I just think there's there's loads more to be done in this space yet. All right, we'll just take a short break there on the podcast with Scott, and just a, a brief reminder around our masterclass platform at sportsmap.com.au. Uh, you can sign up for the year and you get access to the, all the content that we have there, which are super practical uh, education-based content with some of the world's best clinicians. Uh, so something you just can't miss. Chatting about hamstrings, obviously, today with Scott. Craig Purdom in his masterclass talks to a bit of hamstring. We have Dean Benton, who applies some end-stage rehab to the hamstring management process. Obviously, we have some, some content there from Jordan Menaguccio, who's one of the world's best when it comes to hamstrings. And obviously Peter Maliaris as well, talking to proximal hamstring tendinopathy. Uh, content coming out every month. We're off to the UK later this year to film with a range of absolute top class physios and clinicians. So looking forward to bringing you some awesome new content from the crew over there. So stay tuned, get on board and try not to miss anything. So if I was to, if you had a 3C bicep fem that has tracked really well clinically, ticking all your markers, looking really good. Let's just throw a number and say he's week five-ish, six, and you're thinking about a return to play, but player wants an MR, or let's just say the player wants an MR and you don't, and, and you get the MR and there's still some edema in around the injured site or some other degree of signs. Does that, would that influence you at all? Or would you just flow on from there and crack on? Um, the edema, not so much. I think, um... That that's a pretty common feature still to to still, still exist at, at that time frame in a, in a really high grade three C injury, um, and and to be honest, there's the work by Vermeulen recently that showed that a number of of the returning players had a full discontinuity of that intramuscular tendon, and the, those that re-injured and those that didn't had effectively no no difference in their MRI findings. So. The one that I would I would like to have recovered is is certainly that discontinuity. I, I wouldn't want to be seeing a big uh, sort of transverse gap or callus gap at that side. I, I would like to be seeing, whilst it's probably a big thickened aponeurotic structure at, at about that five-week mark, because we think through that healing phase, we're right into that sort of back end of the proliferative phase and sort of starting to get in that remodeling phase. So we're, we're sort of probably beginning to see well we'd like to be thinking that we're maturing collagen from sort of that type three to type one um through this phase then i think as long as i'm seeing a really nice taut um potentially thick uh, intramuscular aponeurosis whilst if there's still some edema sitting there that that won't um sort of uh i guess disturb me from sort of pushing forward from from that site going going forward Cool. So maybe if there's a gap, but maybe even still, you might just be able to really back yeah. yourself in. Yeah, I mean the evidence suggests. Yeah, the evidence suggests that it's probably not. Um, 
it's not meaningful. Uh, I, I, I think returning an athlete uh, with that, uh, based off some of the, the more recent stuff, is probably um, is, is probably something to certainly keep um, uh, front of mind uh, from your returning um, point of uh, the part of your sort of uh, return to play criteria. Sounds good. All right, so. Uh, we just uh, let's talk uh, around a, a, let's just use 3C inner biceps um, you can pick the site uh, but I guess from a healing point of view um, an early loading around I guess protection but uh, to get some load in there what's our method here and how do you go about it in tying I guess your knowledge of the anatomy there and also the clinical standpoint in what you need to do within a rehabilitation yeah um yeah, from a from a healing point of view, it's it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because our understanding of the aponeurotic healing process is is, is very limited in humans uh, for a start, and so our assumption is that it's 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 like the free tendon, so it's obviously much slower than our our um, muscle tissue. Um, so I sort of alluded to this, but obviously we we sort of. Um, that that early phase of, of very very much a, a tissue gap and, and laying very immature scar um, down and then obviously as as we want to sort of protect that 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 sort of immature scar um, in those early phases, um, we I, I suspect we want to be protecting that from 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 very high strains, and if we look at some of the literature in this space, we, we even with you know. 50% and to 70% MVIX um, work in, in biceps fem, we, we can see up to strains at the distal and proximal sites sort of 6 to 8%. So I'm not even sure, like, uh, I think being careful, whilst contraction mode isn't probably the a, a big concern, I'm not sort of too phased about how you go about it. I think protecting potentially length in this, in in that early phase, potentially that sort of first two, one to two weeks is um is particularly useful um so in this case it might be sort of limiting the amount of sort of hip flexion um on a proximal aponeurosis um in that loading phase but maybe basic doing some basic iso inertial loading um so that that can sometimes look like as i said a, a simple prone hammy curl um you can obviously start to be more specific around um, some sort of sort of over uh, overlaying the eccentric phase of that. That could be some tempo stuff. That might be sort of two up, one down sort of phase. But I'd be limiting uh, sort of big, large hip flexion ranges, and then also maybe even protecting end of uh, end of range. Um, obviously, knee extension. So how, how much that knee is extending. So often I'll train them in a very early, a short, shortened position. Um, I tend not to use sort of the isometric contractions um, specifically. Uh, and then, then pretty relatively quickly, I'm starting to, um, once they're sort of showing sort of outside that first one one to two weeks, and that might be sort of 10 to 14 days, I'm starting to um, overlay some early eccentrics. Um, mainly, I think we think uh, that the gene expression or that higher strain of that sort of healing tissue is going to help with the adaptive response of that tendon like tissue in this case um, and sort of allowing um, sort of that alignment um, hopefully of our other collagen fibrils and um, and sort of that sort of um, almost having that anabolic effect uh, from a collagen synthesis point of view um, the other thing to keep in mind is that the work um, uh, sort of by British Athletics has sort of helped guide a little bit in this space because uh, the, I think they brought out a rehab framework paper which basically, uh, especially in high-speed track and field athletes, are running particularly fast. They um, protect that first two weeks uh, from eccentric lengthening contractions as well, and I believe they do do some isometric contractions, I, I think, in that loading phase, exactly the positions and those things I'm sort of un unclear of but also i know that they're not obviously uh potentially running uh dramatically in that in that time frame as well um and then sort of outside of that they're starting to overlay um increasing amount of um high speed and, and eccentric lengthening contraction so i think that's a, a certainly pretty reasonable paradigm to sort of work to um under our current knowledge um the other reason I liked some iso-inertial loading is sort of coming back to that transverse um, 
sort of mechanical properties. I think adding some sort of lengthening and shortening contractions makes sense to me um, to potentially uh, provide the sort of loading um, uh, paradigm to sort of provide the lay down of, of potentially uh, or the redistribution of the collagen um, fibrils uh, in terms of those branching fibrils as well potentially um i so said we don't we don't know that for certain as yet but that, that certainly seems reasonable to me in that sort of early early loading perspective talk us through your iso inertial dosage uh what yeah. that might look like it sounds like it's some time and attention and and sort of um but just description and prescription around that a little bit for us yep that could that, yeah this can look uh pretty pretty basic um sort of some I just do some controlled sort of three seconds up, sort of one second maybe hold at the top, three second down eccentrically. Um, and as I said, this could be using cable cable machine um, where, again, we can protect the range internally different in ways of how we set up the athlete, um, you know, certainly in a prone position, and we can do that similarly with a prone hammy curl. Uh, but sort of often dosage sort of ranging sort of from sometimes three by 12 where I've got very maybe low force. Um, as I said to you, like I, I think sometimes that lower activation um, uh, sort of may also help with some transverse um, um, and um, stretch and, and therefore compliance. Um, and therefore they just sort of maybe progress that down to sort of working from a, a 12, 12 rep range down to a six rep range where I'm maybe obviously starting to increase the intensity through that first first few weeks. Um, and, and as I said to, to before, then, then I start to overlay obviously our eccentric um, lengthening contractions because also I'm starting to obviously think about our detraining effect from a muscle architecture point of view as well, uh, from a fascicle length point of view and um, – as, as, as alluded to, the actual yeah um, gene expression um, response, obviously, of the aponeurotic tissue. Like, nice. And I guess we've sort of uh, worked our way through that a little bit in the sense of uh, graded loading and adaptation. Um, I guess it'd be nice to maybe chat through a little bit around, I guess, where you, if there's anything to add, first and foremost, on graded loading and adaptation and also um, where the compliance comes in and, and you know, um, to... I guess stimulate or uh, to to the injured site, so to speak. Yeah, um, it's a good. Yeah, from, I guess from a graded loading point of view, I said just to just to sort of elaborate on that is obviously then I'm starting to really like once I'm sort of outside that sort of fourteen days and I'm starting to work from two to four weeks. I said with a three C injury, I've obviously using a graded eccentric, so that might be like some hammy sliders. Um, I might be progressing them from like a, a floor-based slider to maybe like a sling or a, a TRX-based sort of slider where I can then maybe add weight um, potentially to their hip. Um, and then I'm sort of obviously returning them uh, to potentially a Nordic um, and then potentially thinking about super maximal uh, Nordics in, in, certain, in certain cases. Then I'm also starting to think about that proximal adding sort of some of that hip flexion back in. So adding some of my hip extension based loading or eccentric loading there. So maybe that 14 day period, I'm starting to do some isometrics in the 45 degree hip extension machine where I'm still protecting range, but I'm starting to load them maybe more theoretically proximally um, and starting to load that sort of proximal uh, biceps femoris long head. And then effectively I'm just starting to progress them both in length and then intensity into that 45 degree hip extension um, until effectively when I'm starting to then from probably four, five weeks on and I'm starting to take them back into some higher speed running, I might dial down the volume of those exercises um, but keeping intensity pretty high and then I'm starting to overlay some um, progressive high speed running so I think that's pretty critical, I would suspect, in the compliance aspect um, that you sort of alluded to or potentially the stiffness properties of that maturing um, uh, maturing, maturing collagen and scar um, through that phase. And, and certainly there's probably other aspects um, that we can do from a gym-based perspective and, and whilst at times um, – for different individuals, for different purposes, we may do more rate loading um, exercises within the gym. Um, I think 
the, the highest velocity in terms of sometimes degrees per second of knee flexion and 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 hip extension is is during high speed running. So making sure that we've been really prescriptive around our exposures there, I think, is is almost priority number one. And then potentially, if we if we feel like we're for whatever reason for that individual, we we want to be overlaying other maybe plyometric type exercises or a certainly higher velocity based task within the gym. I think that there's certainly rationale potentially to do that because the aponeurosis obviously um, may have an energy, uh, as I said, energy store and release um, component to it, to its role as well. So um, I think there's some, the, yeah, I think there's some nuance to, to this because even those as a three C injuries can vary, I guess, a little bit in terms of, um, the amount of the amount of damage that's done um, as well. So at times we can sort of um, obviously progress them faster, um, and and that's based primarily off our clinical um, key clinical outcomes. And there's others that will extend longer. So potentially we're holding them back longer from high speed running, which might mean that we do start a little bit more high velocity training in the gym. So there's again, I just think there's a little bit of nuance and, and individual or subject specific. Um, interpretation there yeah uh, nice I think uh, obviously can um, you know at, at times people can get maybe a little bit lost trying to do both and maybe they don't necessarily need to and it's probably a, an area you may get stuck in trying to do energy storage and release in the gym and high speed running at the same time I think that's the thing I think you can we can try and want to we, we, we often and certainly as a younger clinician this was exactly what I did, and then certainly I'm sure, and, and speaking to young clinicians, that is, is certainly what happens now is that we try and throw everything at them um, because these are obviously often, you know, a, a relatively severe and uh, injury and obviously potentially long return to play times. So the assumption is that we need to do loads to get them back. But I just think we can do simple things really, really well um, as well as as well, as long as we sort of have a really strong graded progression, I, I sort of am a big believer in that whilst we protect them early, we can then actually really load them quite heavily from a strength um, you know, intensity point of view in the gym. And then just we need to make sure that we're sort of dialing that back as we are increasing our sort of high velocity tasks, which in the, in the case of yeah, potentially Australian rules footballers is, is outside sort of often also providing loads of moderate speed running. They spend a lot of time in that sort of mid zone as well as then making sure they are hitting, you know, obviously, you know, significant and prescriptive volumes of high speed running sort of above 26 kilometres an hour and, and making sure they're hitting plenty of exposures above sort of 90% of their max velocity. So I think that's the that's the the, the, the big keys. I don't, I don't think we have to get too com- complex with it as yet because – Whilst the structure is complex, um, we still know very little about how it adapts to load. So we're sort of we are sort of flying blind still a little bit. And again, so hopefully the research that we have coming out, you know, over the next few years, sort of can help with this space. But um, I guess that's why I'm passionate about it because we, in a lot of cases, we don't really have the answers um, that people are looking for. So. Um, Hopefully this provides some insight, but it's certainly not the the only way to go about it. Um, it's just it's certainly just one way. Mate, excellent run through. Just to sort of wrap, uh, I guess things up again, and I sort of bring it back to the aponeurosis component and how um, the loading might be different to just a normal uh, muscular based injury. Uh, is it largely are we seeing an effect in adaptation of the aponeurosis? Is that something we're we're trying to to get, or we just don't know enough? Uh, and, and if so, I guess you've talked to how we go about that. Yeah. Um, the answer is we don't really know. Um, specifically in, in muscles that, as we've alluded to, that are, are commonly injured um, um, and, and especially at some of their unique sort of, um, I guess, anatomical variability. So like the soleus at median septum or the intramuscular aponeurosis of, um, of biceps femoris longhead. Yeah, we, we really don't have a great understanding of how how that tissue adapts um uh, both from a morphological properties point of view but also from a mechanical and material property so 
we don't really understand yet, uh, like how that affects the the, the uh, ponderotic modulus, both longitudinally and transversely, from a loading paradigm, and we certainly don't know that from its a longitudinal transverse stiffness. We do know a little bit based off fastest lateralis and its deeper ponderosis um, that we can we can with uh, long training interventions, so between ten and fifteen weeks that we will have changes in uh, the cross-sectional area um, of, of, that, of that particular um, aponeurosis, as well as its width. Um, and so um, there's a recent study in particular that, that showed quite, uh, a prog again, a, a, progress a progressive training load, th uh, three, uh, I think the frequency was sort of three times a week, uh, basically a couple of exercises that specifically focus on the knee extensors obviously um, showed almost a 10% increase in um, a ponderotic area and um, a ponderotic width. As we sort of alluded to earlier that we saw that a more narrow aponeurosis may increase the long fibre strain during, during running and, and potentially a, a smaller area or contact interface of the aponeurosis was sort of speculated to um, experience greater stress and strain at those sites. So it makes sense to me that we are looking for those adaptations. And so I guess when you when we talk back to, I guess, my rehab paradigm, it has a very clear graduated loading progression with intensity for that exact purpose that I think we are seeing, at obviously, uh, adaptation, but we're also just having a response to the remodelling effect, obviously, of that of that, that firstly, if it's a 3C injury, maybe that that entire gap that we're filling and sort of we're maturing that scar or are we actually having an effect of the healthy tissue as well um, and, and and obviously trying to prevent re-injury? Um, we're really, it's really unclear uh, currently. Um, there's one, uh, a little bit of work and, and this sort of is a bit of a, a th uh, it's a little bit of, uh, how would I describe this? It's a bit of a, I guess, uh, a speculative look at it, but obviously there's a lot of work that shows the MRI findings that we do see a thicker proximal ponderosis post post injury. So as they return to play, they do appear to have a, a much thicker um, uh, a ponderotic tissue comparatively to their uninjured side. Now, theoretically, a thicker um, tendon will obviously have greater volume um, and and therefore be be thicker in in that that dimension. Now, this is considering if its intrinsic properties are unchanged. Now, that's probably a big assumption considering we know the maturing of collagen tissue, but let, let's for the sake, <laughs> for the purposes say that is the case. If it's thicker, we are probably more likely to have a stiffer um, aponeurosis potentially. Um, and as a result, some modelling work has also suggested that uh, um, a, a thicker aponeurosis will also have greater aponeurotic um uh, strain at that site um, along that proximal MTJ again with some 3D modelling studies. So it makes sense to me that um, we constantly want to keep adapting and remodelling over a long period of time. And when we look at animal data, I think ligaments and tendons, it's, it, I think it's been reported up to sometimes two years that remodelling process in these tendons um, can occur for. So if that's the same for aponeurosis, I think that's why the ongoing, you know, high intensity loading um, potentially in the gym and making sure we're getting good high speed exposures on this tissue, um, then probably allow for this ongoing um, adaptation or remodeling approach that um, hopefully is is able to reduce our, our likelihood of, of, of future future injury. So, yeah, lot, lots uh, st still to unpack in this space. But again, hopefully, um, as sort of some part of some of my work, we can sort of identify, firstly, if, if the uh, biceps femoris um, aponeurotic structures uh, can adapt. Um, and I suspect they, they can just, just by how much and, and how does, you know, maybe potentially varying contraction modes influence that. Um, so, yeah, I guess watch this space for that. Beautiful, mate. A great way to wrap it up. Looking forward to, certainly looking forward to, to hearing more about the research as it comes to hand. And for people uh, who are really interested in this space, I'm sure can reach out and connect with you. Um, I'm sure like LinkedIn and, and Twitter. So yeah. Twitter or X, I think, is it? Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> um, so, uh, mate, it's really interesting take through through this. Um, you know, such a knowledgeable take on on the aponeurosis and the injuries that, that come with it. Uh, it's clearly a huge work in that space to come from you and and, and others. Uh, looking forward to it, mate. It's only going to improve what we do um, in the field. So, thanks for that, and, and keep up the good work. And thanks for your time. No, thanks, Nick. Uh, it's uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, thanks for having me.